one of the values we have when we have our kids up is not just to have them perform, or really they're not performing at all, but to teach them what we're doing when we sing together, to teach them the meaning of those songs that we're singing, and to sing, teach them to be lifelong worshipers. So uh, we do things maybe a little differently than some churches. They're helping lead the singing, not just standing and putting on a show for us, but that's because there's really important values we're trying to instill in our children here. Uh, we've taken a break from our series in Isaiah to look at a few beloved Christmas carols and look at the scriptures behind them. And we're looking at O Come, O Come, Emmanuel today, which interestingly is going to have us in the book of Isaiah. So if you would open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7, which if you're using the Bible that looks like this in the pew rack, you can find that on page 572, page 572. I want to mention to you, if you don't have a Bible, um, you can take this Bible home with you. There's even a little note right in the front that says you can take the Bible home with you so you don't have to feel guilty about it. We want everyone to have a way to read God's word. We're on page 572, Isaiah 7. I'm going to read verse 14, and then I'll flip over to the other page and read chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. First from Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then from chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they're glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumults, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You can be seated as we pray. Father, each one of us comes in this room with very different things on our hearts and our minds. Some of us riding high, some of us quite low, and all for different reasons. You, by your Spirit, know each one of our conditions, even things that we haven't told to anyone else. But all of us need the same thing right now. We need your word. We need the voice of Almighty God speaking into our hearts. So we pray that as we look to your word, its truths would shape our hearts. Its truths would be heard by us and believed by us and received by us. So would your spirit do work in our hearts? We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. 
What are the proper Christmas feelings? Good cheer, joy, love, generosity. Well, there's another Christmas feeling. It might be the most important, but it often gets crowded off the stage. Or when the Christmas sentiments family sends out their Christmas card, this sentiment gets cropped out of the picture. It's longing. Longing. Ooh, that sibling doesn't belong here. Don the sequins and the sparkles. Slap a smile on your face. Let's all at least enjoy one month where those killjoys like longing aren't invited to the party. And maybe some of you in this room feel that way. There's a longing inside you. So you wonder, is Christmas for me? Maybe it's a longing for wholeness in broken relationships or a longing for good health or a longing tied to the loss of someone you love or a longing to go back and redo a big mistake you made. Maybe it's a longing to never be alone Or longing to be able to just get out of bed with a, without a, a smile that's forced. And the longing makes you feel like you don't belong at the Christmas party or even at the church Christmas service. So maybe you try to fake it. Hope that the momentum of this time of year with the good cheer will carry you along in its wave and distract you from the deeper longings you feel. Or maybe you're beyond faking it. You feel like a, a total outsider, an imposter. Christmas just isn't for you. Maybe for some of you, that's why you're watching online today instead of being here in person. But even for people who aren't crippled by longing, all of us still feel it at some level. And here's the critical reality that I want us to see today. If we let the Bible define Christmas for us, then longing is one of the most foundational Christmas feelings. So I want us to recrop the Christmas sentiments family photo. Or I want us to reorganize the stage so that longing is right in the middle. And to help us with that recalibration is a very familiar but unusual Christmas carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's hymn number 218 in your hymnal. So you're going to have two books open today. You can have your Bible open. And if you want to be able to look at the lyrics of the hymn, you can open to hymn number 218 and look at it there. Of course, the Bible is the more important thing to have open. But it's, it's a weird Christmas carol. And perhaps because it's so familiar, we don't realize how weird it is. But look at some of the sentiments expressed in this Christmas carol. Verse 1 talks about mourning in lonely exile. Can any of you relate to that feeling? Verse 2 talks about gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow. Anybody in this room feeling a darkness that you just can't shake? 
Verse 3 talks about being gripped under Satan's tyranny. Maybe that describes you in a battle with a certain sin. Verse 4 describes envy, strife, and quarrels. Maybe that describes your time with family. Maybe a little bit too well. In this hymn, there's no dashing through the snow or chestnuts roasting. This isn't a tender Tennessee Christmas and nobody is rocking around the Christmas tree. No wise men are bringing gifts, no angels singing Gloria, no shepherds telling it on the mountain. Just naked, unvarnished longing. Come. Oh, come. End our misery. Save us from the hell we're moving toward. Break Satan's dastardly bonds. End our exile. Disperse our clouds. If you know the tune, it fits this longing, doesn't it? It almost has a haunting quality to it. That's because, I don't know if you know this, but the tune was originally a funeral tune. It's a really, really, really old tune dating back to when the church sang in something called chant. And this was one of the chant tunes that French monks would sing at a funeral. Okay, weird just got weirder. A funeral tune at Christmas. Yeah, let's squeeze that one off the stage. But no, I'm saying we want to place it front and center because this song captures so beautifully biblical Christmas sentiment. And I want to prove that to you from the book of Isaiah. I want to show you four different passages that prove to us that longing is a cardinal sentiment of Christmas. And the first passage is Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 4. Again, if you're using the Bible in the pew rack, you can find that on page 567, 567. And before I read these verses, I want to remind you who haven't been tracking along in our Isaiah series or have forgotten what the context is here. Israel was in quite the bind. Their king Uzziah, who'd reigned for several decades and had brought political stability, he died. And the long-standing political st stability was rocked. At the same time, up to the north, these barbarous Assyrians had risen in power and were now breathing down their necks. Next. But it wasn't just external problem that was in play. Internally, they were also a mess. Chapter 1 of Isaiah describes just how dark and rebellious God people, God's people had become. So Isaiah is kind of laying into them. And then out of the blue comes chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. Like water in a desert or like shade in the summer, listen to what it says. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above all the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. 
Nation shall not lift up nation against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. There's a good future coming, Isaiah says, where one will rise, a king who will dissolve the strife and quarrels that mark our fallen world. And the nations are going to long for this kind of king so much that they're going to stream to Jerusalem. And they're going to stream there with express intent of having God's good law govern them. It's kind of a reversal of Babel. Remember Babel, all the nations are united in opposing the true king. And so God drove them away, dividing their languages. You could imagine maybe like a, a big hill and pouring a bucket of water on top of that. And the, the, the one bucket of water gets spread out into all these little different streams. But on this future day, that will be reversed. The nations will be united, but this time they'll be united by pursuing the true king and his rule. So if you want to reverse the image, you think of like a, a bunch of hills that all have rain pouring on them, and then there's this low point, and all the streams are flowing to this one point. All peoples united with one heart and one mind to serve God. That's a beautiful picture. You can imagine how Israel in her day would have longed for that day amidst the war and the political tumult. There was real Babel-like division happening, a tearing, a rendering, and nations were tottering and clubbing one another like gladiators waiting for the next geopolitical power to fall, and it was a bloody and scary time. And Isaiah foretells a time when it's all going to change. That prophecy, this prophecy would create a a longing. But I want us to notice how Isaiah directs that longing. It's not just for the time when peace replaces hostility. Did you see that at the start of verse 4? It's not just for a time, it's for a person. He's a judge, he's a king, it looks like. You might call him the desire of nations. All the nations coming for him and his law. He's going to bind all peoples in one heart and one mind. He'll bid envy, strife, and quarrel cease, and he'll fill all the world with heaven's peace. Come. Oh, come. Can you feel the longing? For a day of true peace, when all the disputes are resolved, That's our longing. We're not just longing for a day. We're longing for a person. That's passage one, Isaiah two, verses two to four. Passage number two is Isaiah seven fourteen. Isaiah, Isaiah seven fourteen. Just a few pages forward. Now, again, context is helpful. So Israel had two parts, northern and southern tribes. Assyria is breathing down their necks. So the northern tribes say to this other people, Syria, they say, let's, let's unite to fight against the Assyrians. And so you got the northern tribes in Syria, and they want Jerusalem to join with them, and King Ahaz in Jerusalem to join with them. King Ahaz refuses, and so these these two armies are going to fight to make King Ahaz and the southern tribes join them so they can have a formidable army to stop the Assyrians. Ahaz is like, what do I do? Prophet Isaiah shows up and he's like, here's what you do. Yeah, don't join that alliance, but, but just trust me. Trust the Lord. 
He's got it. You don't need to look to anything else or anyone else. But of course, King Ahaz is unwilling to just entrust himself to the Lord and his promises. So instead, he tries to finagle and maneuver away for his own safety, and he ends up in alliance with the Assyrians, asking them to help them beat the northern tribes and the Assyrians. Now, when, Yahweh, when Ahaz was not trusting Yahweh, Yahweh had offered King Ahaz a sign that he'd protect them, and Ahaz had refused the sign. And so Yahweh comes back and he's like, okay, I'm going to give you a shocking sign, a sign that no one could possibly believe. But this sign has a stinger in it because as we'll see later on in chapter, or as you see later on in chapter 8, verse 8, this, this sign would be an alternate king to Ahaz. So again, we read 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This word Emmanuel means God with us. And it only occurs twice in the entire Old Testament here and then in chapter 8, verse 8 where it clearly refers to a king. <clears throat> so God says that a virgin will give birth to a child named God with us, and we see that this Emmanuel will be an alternate king to Ahaz. Now, it won't be long that those Assyrians will whoop, swoop down and defeat the northern tribes carrying them off into exile. Those same Assyrians would turn on the southern tribes, ransack all their land except for their capital. Later on, as we see in Isaiah, the southern tribes would learn that they're going to be carried into exile in Babylon. So many reading Isaiah's prophecy would have been ripped from the land they love. Physically mourning under oppression because of foolish leaders like Ahaz. And it would leave them longing. How do we fix this mess? And how does Isaiah direct their longing? What kind of sign does Yahweh give? person, a virgin-born God with us. You see, that's the hope. That's the better king. And if you just use your imagination a bit, can you sense how deeply an exiled people would long for this greater coming king? Oh, come. Oh, come, Emmanuel and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until, until God with us, this Son of God, appears. Oh, come. I don't think anyone in this room, maybe I'm wrong, is feeling physical exile from their homeland. But there is a truer home that we all feel. A rule, a world ruled by God that is ruled in justice and righteousness. Do you ever feel the weight of living in, under Satan's tyranny? You feel the weight of living under imperfect politicians? You feel our exile? from the true and great king in his land? I know I do. Isaiah says what we're longing for is Emmanuel and his land. 
That's passage number two, Isaiah 7, 14. Now let's look at the third passage, Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. And it begins with darkness. You can look right above the end of chapter 8. You'll look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. And verse 2 picks up the people who walked in darkness. Why darkness? Because we learn in chapter 8 that despite the sign promised, the people had chosen to align themselves with Ahaz instead of Emmanuel. They'd chosen to reject God's word, to not trust God's promises, and to not live in light of his commands. And as a result, slowly but inevitably, darkness, the darkness of sin had grown thicker and bleaker, so much so that it was a felt darkness, an overwhelming darkness that filled the whole land. But as we read, into this darkness, the darkness caused by mankind's rebellion against their creator, into this darkness, a light shines. Like the light of dawn, or day spring, as it used to be called. The light appears. And what is the light? Is it a change in our circumstances? That sad thing is undone? Well, kind of. Some level of new circumstances in it. But, but those things, even as you read 9, 1 to 7, the, the changes in circumstances aren't the light. The light, again, is a person. It comes in the form of a child. A child from David who reigns on his throne a child who is also called Almighty God. And this child King God is the light we need when our souls are darkened. He is the day spring, the dawn. Isaiah's days were dark. Thick darkness, fearful gloom, the gloom of living in a world under Satan's sway, the gloom of living under the results of our rebellion against our Creator, the darkness of God's judgment, which Isaiah hits over and over again, his hand against them. And you can imagine in that day how they would go back over and over again to this prophecy in 9, 1 to 7, and long, come, come, O day spring, Disperse the clouds of dark. Put death's shadows to flight. Bring light and cheer. Oh, come. Do you see how the book of Isaiah is fostering in their darkness a sense of longing, a longing for relief, a longing for better times, but Isaiah directs these longings to a person. I'm longing for the day spring from on high. I'm longing for Emmanuel. I'm longing for the desire of nations who could bind all peoples together. And those three longings I've mentioned, there's many more, but I want to show you one more, just one more in chapter 11, verses 1 to 5. The prophet Isaiah is given the unenviable task of telling Israel that God is going to judge her wickedness. And over and over again, he's been telling her about pending judgment. Sometimes it's very imminent judgment. The Assyrians, the Babylonians. Sometimes he talks about ultimate end-of-the-world judgment of all people because of our sin. You cannot be reading through the book of Isaiah and miss the fact that God judges our sin. He is a just God, and he deals with our sin and punishes us, which means for both you and for me, 
apart from Christ, we will be judged for our sins. But even as the prophet keeps hitting that message because he's bound to hit that message, at the same time, he keeps reminding Israel of a, of a better future, ultimate victory when God's going to usher in a better kingdom. And here in 11, 1 to 5, 11, chapter 11, verses 1 to 5, we have that picture. Look at it with me. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. You shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness the belt of his loins. There's a picture. You notice how the picture started? With the stump of Jesse and a little shoot. Not the limb of David. Nope. Let's go to Jesse. Just David's dad. And, and just a little stump and, a, and a, a sprout. A little shoot. Small. Our version of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel calls it the rod of Jesse. In the original Latin, of this song, it's the twig of Jesse. Small, insignificant, like a baby born to poor peasants, like a young unmarried woman giving birth, like a barnyard as a birthing room and a feeding trough as a cradle. That's how God's kingdom works. What's small and despised, despised ends up being what triumphs. That in itself is a bit of a word of a hope to us who feel crushed under the weary load of this world. But here, the twig of Isaiah 11, we see shall become a mighty fruit-bearing branch. He's going to reclaim the territory of the tyrant, Satan. Instead of oppression, there will be freedom. Instead of the wicked triumphing, the wicked are punished. And instead of inequality, there's true equity. All the vileness that marks the world under Satan's sway is gone. Isaiah will go on to tell us of this branch in Isaiah 53. And I want you to just turn ahead real quick. Isaiah 53. Let me read verses 2 to 6 of this same branch. For he grew up before him like a plant, like a root out of dry ground, Isaiah 53, 2. So there's that branch, that twig. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. See, starting small, insignificant. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and Yahweh's laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. What a branch. What a plant. We feel crushed under our sins. The guilt, ways we haven't measured up or ways we've hurt others or rebelled against our God. Do we feel the weight of living in a sin-sick world marked by Satan's tyranny? I think Israel beat up and battered must have felt that way. And then there's this vision of wickedness gone, injustice gone. But also in Isaiah 53, their own sins and their own guilt dealt with. If they believed the words of Isaiah's prophecy, how they would have longed, come, oh come, twig of Jesse, free us from Satan's tyranny, rescue us from the death and hell our sins deserve. Oh, come. Passage number four, Isaiah 11, one to, one to five. Okay, so at this point, I hope I've proved that longing is a key theme in Isaiah. And we've seen that Isaiah directs that longing to a person. But I haven't proven that longing is a key theme of Christmas in the Bible. But as the biblical story unfolds, we find that that longing, that Isaiah's longing is fulfilled when a certain person entered the world. Jesus on Christmas Turn to Luke chapter 1 on page 856. Um, so this is uh, Zechariah's prophecy right after his son, John the Baptist, who would go on to be John the Baptist, was born. Zechariah is carried along by the Holy Spirit and makes a prophecy. And the prophecy relates to the time they're in as John the Baptist and then Jesus are coming. And I just want you to hear how Zechariah is saying the longings of Isaiah and the prophets are fulfilled here. So this is Isaiah, uh, Luke chapter 1, verses six, starting at verse 68. He says... Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, he's talking about John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you'll go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise or the day spring shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Rejoice! Rejoice! Emmanuel has come. Christmas then doesn't make sense without longing. It's like a hot fire when nobody's cold. It's like a great meal when nobody's hungry. If Christmas doesn't make sense without longing, Might it also be true 
that we can say that Christmas is made better when we know longing? It was just uh, a couple weeks ago, an out-of-town friend graciously provided a, a meal for us by ordering KFC for our family. And there were a few of us that were pretty excited to be eating KFC instead of dad's cooking. <laughs> and it was supposed to arrive at our door at 5.30. 5.30 came, there was no meal at the door. We're teaching our kids, wait patiently. You know, sometimes it arrives late. The patience is starting to wear thin. Finally, it gets to 6 o'clock, and we reach out to our friend, and our friend looks into things and realizes that they had misentered our address, and the meal had ended up on the other side of Georgetown in a stranger's doorstop. Or doorstep. Now, this out-of-town friend actually knew somebody who lived near there, contacted this, this friend who goes to the doorstep, and finds the food still sitting there and brings it to her doorstep. So I load up a couple kids in the car and drive all the way across Georgetown to this friend's house, go to their doorstop. I mean, we're, we're pretty committed to our KFC. <laughs> Get the box, drive it home, set the table, and now it's close to 8 o'clock. And we love the food. <laughs> it was a little cold. But we loved it because we were so hungry. Isn't it true that our longing actually makes us enjoy things a bit more? Okay. We read Zechariah's prophecy. But if all our longing is fulfilled in Jesus' incarnation, why do we sing Israel's song now? O come, O come, Emmanuel is already weird enough with its expressions of longing and its funeral tune. But then whoever wrote this thing decided to frame it as Israel's song. That's even weirder. If Christ's birth fulfilled the longings of Isaiah, shouldn't this song properly be sung, Rejoice, Rejoice, Emmanuel has come? Right? Turn on the happy tunes. Replace the funeral dirge with a, with a three, four time Christmas melody. Don the sequins and sparkles. Good cheer all around. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Oh, he's come. No. Because as the scriptures tell the story, the advent of Christ began, began the fulfillment of the Isaianic longings. But longings that won't be fully consummated until Christ returns. You might say it's a bit like waking up on Christmas morning and going and seeing all the gifts under the tree, some shaped like that very toy you wanted with your name on it, but they aren't unwrapped yet. I mean, they're there. It's certain. Christmas has come. But I don't yet get to enjoy the full reality of it. One more passage. Look at me at Revelation chapter 5. This is on page 1031. 1031. Revelation 5. I did not coordinate this with Utah, who used this passage in his prayer or in leading us in prayer. But in, uh, I said 10,031, it's 10,030. In this passage, um, there's this vision of a scroll that is the scroll that unfolds God's ultimate victory. So all the things we're longing for, when this scroll opens, his victory comes. It's all consummated. And in verse 4, John begins to weep loudly because there was no one found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So even John's feeling that longing 
Well, then the elders say, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll. So if the scroll can't be opened, we weep. Because Jesus conquered, came to earth, lived a perfect life, went to the cross, died, rose again. He's fit to open the scroll, but the scroll has not yet been opened. That's the time we live in. So just in chapter 6 of, of Revelation, in verses 9 and 10, John sees under the altar souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for their witness they'd borne. So this is pictures of, of martyrs in heaven right now. And what are they doing? They're crying out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you'll judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? There is longing Christ has come. He's come. He went to the cross. He bore the consequences of our sin. He conquered death. He dealt Satan his fatal blow. He proved he's fit to open the scroll of Revelation 5. But ultimate victory is still yet future. And while the triumphs of Christ's first advent hang over this era that we live in as assuring facts. We can see the presence. We can see our name on them. We still await the full consummation of that victory. It's assured. We're confident in it because of Christmas. We have hope. But still we wait. Still we long. And that way the Christmas longings of Isaiah have the same DNA as the longings we feel today. That's why when Christians some thousand years ago sought to express Christmas longing, they used the language of exiled Israel, and it's profound. It's a profound move, because even as it allows us to express our longing, in using the words of ancient Israel, it is a reminder us to us that God has kept his promises. So yes, Emmanuel's come, which gives us confidence that he'll come again. Do you guys know how O Come, O Come, Emmanuel came to be? I've already alluded to it here and there. It was roughly a thousand years ago and how the Christians then celebrated Christmas. For the seven Sundays leading up to Christmas, they would gather and they would sing one verse, one verse expressing longing. They were called the O Antiphons. They were sung in Latin, seven antiphons. Now fast forward about 800 years to 1850, around 1850, the Latin antiphons were discovered by one John Mason Neal. He was a minister, but he couldn't serve the church because he had a lung disease. And so he spent time translating old Latin hymns, including Good King Wenceslas. And he translated five verses of the antiphons and published them. Eventually, all seven were translated, and some of Neal's work was slightly modified. We typically sing four of the verses all at once. But I love thinking about that Christian church in the 1100s. I'm sure there's things that they got wrong that we get right. But on this, there's something they got wrong, or they got right, that we get wrong. What they wanted to do in preparation for Christmas was to put longing front and center. Longing as the Christmas sentiment. I don't think they sent out family Christmas cards back then, but if they did, longing wasn't cropped out of the picture. So where does that leave us in this room who long? First, I want you to know Christmas is for us who long. But we are reminded of a few things we can do with that longing. First, that great reminder from Isaiah of where he directs our longing. 
Our hope shouldn't ultimately be to see that lost loved one or to have that relationship repaired or find love in your life. Our longing can only be fulfilled in Emmanuel. So we need to redirect our longings to him, not some change in our circumstances. But second, I think we're helped because we can be comforted by the realities of Christmas. God has fulfilled his promises, even if they're not yet fully fulfilled. And so as we direct our longing for Emmanuel, we say, and I know it's true, and that can give me hope. And third, I think we can know that the longing we feel now will make Emmanuel's future land all the sweeter. Yeah, we mourn in lonely exile. We suffer under Satan's tyranny. Our paths lead straight to hell. We're lost in clouds of darkness. But Isaiah's Emmanuel, Zechariah's dayspring, the desire of the nations, Isaiah's twig from Jesse, he has come. Christmas proves that these promises are true. It assures us of the fulfillment. Because of the incarnation, we know that Jesus will one day bring an end to all the strife, your suffering and mine. Your longings and mine will find their end when Christ returns. Rejoice. Rejoice. Why? Emmanuel shall come. Let's pray. Father, help us to think rightly about Christmas, to know that the longings in our heart for justice, for forgiveness of sins, for the cloud to be lifted, for an end to political tumult and war, for our own sins to be dealt with and forgiven, for us to be able to escape the hell we deserve. These longings are ultimately met in a person, a person who came and will come again. So help us to celebrate Christmas in a biblical way, not just with joy and good cheer and love and generosity, but with longing. In Christ's name, amen.